0: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Gloria Steinem is a feminist icon who's led a drive for equality in the American workplace and in American life. She has a new book that chronicles her time on the road while on this fight. We'll talk to her on the date her book officially comes out, and a few days before she travels to New Haven to take part in a 20th anniversary celebration for the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Funds like this one invest in women locally, nationally, sometimes internationally, Today, Where We Live, we'll talk about what these funds do, what work is left to be done on the path to equality and prosperity for women. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at live. Joining us in studios, studio is Sharon Capetta, who's Director of Development at the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven and lead staff for the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Sharon, uh, welcome to our program. Congratulations on this anniversary.
1: Thank you, John. Good morning, and thank you for having us.
0: Could, could you just quickly tell me what exactly the, the fund does? What is it you invest in?
1: Women and girls. Yeah, It's a collective women's endowment fund, and uh, it's one actually of 12 across the state and uh, many more across the country and in the world. And... Um, puts together resources that in turn invest in nonprofits who are providing programming and services specifically for women and girls.
0: What sort of programming and services are most needed, especially in the communities you serve?
1: Well, I think many of the women's funds are are really focused on uh, several key areas. Of course, health is a a major uh, uh, issue, and um, economic security, education, um political participation as well moving toward parity and representation
0: political participation and this is important I'm sure we'll be talking about this a little bit more it's a it's a very important year in politics for women did you sense that with the notion of of uh, Hillary Clinton Carly Fiorina running for president that more women you talk to are excited you have more people energized about getting involved in politics or is it still kind of an uphill fight to muster some of these resources
1: yeah, I'm not sure I'd venture a guess at this point. I, I think uh, there'll be plenty of research and analysis uh, post-election. Uh, but um, women's funds mostly focus on making sure that women are entering the political process. So there are, for instance, the Women's Campaign School at Yale, which teaches women how to run campaigns and be candidates and be successful.
0: Well, what about the health piece of this? Obviously, we've, we've seen so many changes to our health care system over the course of the last couple of years and so many more women and girls, and of course, men and boys, are able to get health uh, insurance than they used to. But there's still, uh, it still seems as though health care, true health, is out of the reach of an awful lot of people. Where are some of the, the challenges you face there?
1: Well, I think the health disparities, and particularly along uh, race and ethnicity, are um, major issues that are uh, of uh, considerable importance to feminists and the feminist movement.
0: Well, what is it you're doing about that?
1: Uh, Well, there's uh, some great work going on, um, actually, uh, also in New Haven, which the Fund for Women and Girls has supported, and it's um, about um, ensuring that gender is a variable in basic medical science. I mean, for years, uh, women were not part of clinical trials or medical trials, and so protocols for treating women who have had a heart attack um, are different from men, obviously, and uh, so there's great work being done. Uh, by Women's Health Research at Yale, and um, we're proud to support that, and that has local, national, and international implications.
0: We're talking with Sharon Capetta, and she is from the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Uh, they're celebrating their 20th anniversary with a lunch in an Omni Hotel at Yale. One of the special guests is Gloria Steinem, who we'll be hearing from later on in our program. One of the other special guests is Teresa Younger. She's president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. She's the former executive director of Connecticut's Primitive Commission on the Status of Women. And so she's joined us on this program a number of times. And it's good to hear from you once again, Teresa. You join us from uh, New York today. Thanks for being back on Where We Live. Thanks for having me on. Uh, talk about the importance of funds like the Community Fund for Women and Girls and some of the work that Sharon's talking about here.
2: So, you know, what the, the most important part of the community foundations and the women's foundations that are spread throughout this country uh, is the fact that they actually know what's happening in their communities. And they're able to do two things that are really critical. One, it allows women to put their money where they're, concerns are and come together in a collaborative way to fund what's happening in their community. In addition, it also allows uh, those women's organizations within a community to be elevated and funded for the work that they are doing and the services that they are providing within their communities themselves.
0: What's the role of government versus the role of... of um, communities uh, funding these women 's funds, uh, individuals uh, charitable organizations, because government has played obviously such a large role in so many of the issues that uh, that, that Sharon just brought up, but I guess i 'm wondering whether or not you see a balance here, Teresa, between what government 's able to do and what others outside of government are able to do to to help some of these causes
2: there 's plenty of work for everybody to do. I think it would be a disingenuous. Disingenuine of us to think that government was going to be able to provide for all of the needs that uh, a community would have or that our society has as a whole. And so we have to rely, and, and it, it would be incorrect for us to assume that government has all of the answers on how to resolve some of the challenges that we have in our communities. Sometimes we have to rely on our communities to know what the answers are to best make them safe, to keep them healthy, to make sure that they have economic security. Uh, And so I think there's a role for both community uh, as well as government to play in this. And they oftentimes play it together. They oftentimes are working together. You know, the really nice thing about uh, the Women's Fund in New Haven, and you'll recall this, John, several years ago, the budget in the state of Connecticut was really bad. And we were, it, as a state agency, the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women was cut in half And in order for us to do public policy work at that time, we went to the Women's Fund, both in New Haven and in Fairfield County, and asked them to help support the policy work that we were doing in New Haven, which was helping all of the communities that they were serving and all of the nonprofits that they were serving by giving them the data they needed, training them on how to be advocates uh, up at the Capitol, and creating partnerships between local government state government, and a state agency like the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. So there's a real role for for community women's funds to play in this process. There's a partnership that needs to happen.
0: And so, Sharon, you were essentially underpinning what is a a government function here. The the, uh, Permanent uh, Commission for the Status of Women was underfunded, and it has um, sustained cuts over the course of years. And so your organization and others had to step in and underpin this.
1: Yeah, well, it was a, an important statement to make. Uh, the the voices of women, the experiences of women. Uh, when we when we get to the the place we want to be, we will not be thinking about gender after the fact. We'll be thinking about it ahead of time. So if we want to do workforce development, and nearly fifty percent of the workforce is female, we want to make sure that our workforce development training programs are friendly to female and to women and allow them to succeed. Uh,
0: so uh, Teresa Younger, I we've talked about some of these issues in the past but i think it's a it's a really good time to talk through some of these things we've we've established a little bit about what uh, Ms. foundation does and and what uh, the community fund for women and girls does but th- this idea of investing in women and girls Versus investing in people. Right. Give me give me some specifics. Your elevator pitch first, Teresa, about why it's important to invest in women and girls as opposed to just invest broadly in workforce solutions to just broadly invest in um, in health equity for all. I mean, what's the what's the difference here?
2: Well, I think what's really important in respecting and reflecting on investing in women and girls is that women make up 50% of the population. And yet we have we get 7% of philanthropic dollars coming our way. Uh, more ha- households are headed by women today. More women make up the wor- workforce than ever before. And uh, the reality at the end of the day is that we have been waiting a long time and watching as men have not been able to actually address the issues that uh, women and their families are facing. And we need to do that and understand that oftentimes women's voices are not at the table. And so we need to make sure that women's voices are at the table so that they can be heard and that they can lend their expertise to the solutions that need to happen to build our communities and make them stronger. It's It's not, and we have to understand that it's not men against women. It's not women and girls against boys and men. We do know that when we fund women and girls, we are funding a community. And in funding that community, we make the entire society stronger.
0: One of the things that you'll hear me talk about uh, with Gloria Steinem later, Teresa, and, and I think I've discussed this with her a few times, and I think it's a fascinating topic, is the notion of equality for women. We talk about something like pay equality, right? We, we understand the statistics that women make less hour or per, per dollar than, than men do. Um, but at the same point that we talk about equality, you and others make, and Gloria Steinem makes a very strong case that there is something vital and important about bringing women's voices to the table that doesn't have anything to do with equality. It's because the actual voice of women help to change something about the matrix of politics and society and, and corporations. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because it's a very nuanced argument, right? It's not just about having the equal number of women as men and women making the same amount as men. It's that women bring something different to the table.
2: This is a conversation about values. If we truly value everybody's lived experience and what, and, and who they are, then we have to value that the solutions they propose to us will have, uh, an impact in how we see and understand what's happening. And so the, the, the real conversation around equality is not a numbers game, ultimately. Because if we looked at just the numbers, we wouldn't be talking just about pay equity being, uh, you know, that women are making 78 cents to the dollar, we would recognize that women of color are making far less than that and men of color are making less than that. So when we're talking about the value of voices and understanding the comprehensiveness of those voices, that's what's really important. And at the Ms. Foundation, we've been building movements to ensure that people have a seat at the table and that their voices are heard and respected because they're coming with solutions and they're coming with experiences that help have an impact on how we might come up with solutions for some of the real challenges that uh, we are facing as a society. Sharon, do you have a thought about that idea?
1: I actually do. I mean there's uh, been quite a bit of research when we when we move past is this about men versus women, boys versus girls. When we move past about it, we see how by taking a look through gender we are able to see things differently. Um, the uh, Stanford Social Review did an did, uh, so incredible amount of research, and there's uh, a body of knowledge developing about how corporations with uh, more women's representation both in, on board leadership as well as uh, management and executive levels actually outperform their counterparts. And so when we're looking in the market and we're looking to make investments, are we taking that into account? which helps our bottom line, helps the corporate bottom line, helps the community's bottom line.
0: So, Teresa, what are the barriers to that? I mean, it seems as though we can make an economic argument for uh, women to have more positions of power, say, in the corporate world. But yet this is an argument that doesn't seem to necessarily be heard loud and clear by corporate America. Is it just because of who's at the table? Is it because men even... You know, decades after Gloria Steinem uh, started some of her work, uh, we're we're still mostly led by men in corporations and men in the Senate and men in all the places of power. What what is the big barrier here?
2: Well, I think there are. I think the reality at the end of the day is we are making strides and that we are actually at a point that we've never been in before. And so we are seeing movements like 30% Coalition, which is striving to have more women on boards, corporate boards. Uh, We are seeing movements like what the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women did, which was ensuring to get more women into top-level government leadership positions. We have caucuses within the women's caucus within the General Assembly, which is working to make sure that women are in leadership and that they have their voices heard in uh top uh positions and chairmanships within the General Assembly and within government itself as a whole. So I think there's movement getting made in that arena. And I think we will continue to make strides. Part of it has been that we didn't have the research. And Sharon just brought up some of the research that's out there that actually proves its case. Um, and by very not just women saying you need more voices at the table and we should be seated there and how do we get there. We also have now, more than ever, women who have college educations, who have work experience that they didn't have before, and so they can compete at the same level as many men uh, in the kinds of leadership that we want them to be seeking and the supports to be in those leadership positions. Uh,
0: Teresa, I just want to ask you one more question before the break. And and I mentioned uh, some of the politics of of 2016 in the campaign earlier to Sharon. I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that. The The Ms. Foundation, I know, took a poll earlier this year, found the presidential candidates may be missing the point by referring to, quote-unquote, women's issues, which are sometimes very narrowly defined. We have a couple of high-profile female candidates for the presidency. How do you see some of the issues that you're talking about and that Sharon's talking about being discussed within the context of a 2016 presidential race that actually includes two women in the race?
2: Well, one of the things I think that was most important about the research and polling that we did at the Ms. Foundation this summer was that we actually have data that says to candidates, when you are talking about, quote unquote, women's issues, you're marginalizing the conversation and that women's lives are far more complex than that. And we need to understand that. And so when you want to talk and engage women in conversations about innovative solutions and what's happening in our communities, you need to talk about the Um, the impact of of what those issues are as they affect women in their communities. And we've put that information out there. And and in all actuality, when you talk about women and, and the impact that they have in their communities and what they need to see done, you talk about how complex our lives are. And the polling said to politicians, we want you to talk about the complexity of our lives. We don't want you to think that everything is separated out. So if you want to talk about health care, you need to talk about access. You need to talk about education. You need to talk about transportation. You need to talk about gender disparities as well as race disparities in this conversation. Please don't assume us as the public don't have all of these experiences affecting us and make your policy decisions based on understanding the complexity of our lives. And, and
0: Sharon, that gets specifically to some of the work that you folks do. It's, it's about trying to actually fund a, a complex series of things that make up women's and girls' lives as opposed to just simply what we have long referred to as quote-unquote women's issues.
1: Yes, we did um, in 2012, we did a status of women and girls in New Haven and um, uh, there was qualitative and quantitative research. And in the qualitative across socioeconomic uh stratus the it was clear that the issues that women in New Haven were facing were child care and family care issues were drastically affecting their ability to work and support their families. The cost of housing was was a severe issue for the women that we spoke with, and so um you know this is basic stuff this is this is um, single female head of households uh is the nexus point we feel for investing in women and moving our community forward.
0: We're talking about investing in women in New Haven and Connecticut and in America. When we come back from a break, we'll be talking about investing in women and girls around the globe. If you want to join us, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. <laughs> This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. Coming up on Friday, October 30th, the Community Fund for Women and Girls will celebrate its 20th anniversary with a luncheon at the Omni Hotel at Yale. Special guests include Teresa Younger who's the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women who joins us today from New York on the program. Uh, another special guest is Gloria Steinem the noted activist and feminist. She'll join us later on in the program. We're also joined today by Sharon Capetta who's Director of Development at the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven and lead staff for the Community Fund for Women and Girls. I want to turn now to Katya Iverson who's CEO of Women Deliver. It's a global advocate uh, for investment in girls and women. And Katya, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it.
3: Well, um, it's my pleasure.
0: Could could you tell us about the work that Women Deliver uh, does?
3: I can. We are a global advocate for the health, rights, and well-being of girls and women with a particular focus on driving investment and that's both political investment, financial investment, and programmatic investment in uh, girls and women uh, including very much in maternal health around the world, sexual and reproductive health, access to family planning, and gender equality.
0: But why is it so important to make these investments on, on, in women around the world?
3: As we say, women deliver, and much more than babies. <laughs> so, you know, if we want to see progress both for the individual woman and girl, and for the whole, uh, as Teresa said, communities, but also nations, we have to invest in girls and women. There's a fantastic untapped potential. Uh, if uh, girls and women were healthier, had more education— or economic empowered and political participated, then we could see uh, a great progress for everybody.
0: We've seen a number of studies over the course of years, Katya, about how small investments even in women as heads of households in many, many developing countries can be shown to be one of the, the biggest economic drivers for these places. And these are, these are very real numbers. As you say, these are, um, these are investments that do pay themselves back. Why do you think that the struggle to get people to, to see this, to invest in a way that clearly makes a lot of sense and can do a lot of good?
3: Well, the easy answer is that it's been considered a woman's issue. Let me just give you a quick snapshot. Every day, 800 women die in childbirth. 225 million women do not have access to family planning, so they can decide when and if to become pregnant. 1.8 million young people, uh, do. uh, that's kind of what we see in the world today, their choices and opportunities also when it comes to Uh, reproduction will define the world as we want it and as we know it. So, you know, investing in girls and women and their reproductive health and uh, uh, making them survive uh, pregnancy and childbirth is just the bedrock if we want to see progress both in terms of gender equality but also in terms of a bigger economic gain.
0: Uh, Teresa Younger, I want to quickly turn to you because Katja is talking specifically about reproductive health around the world. We recently had a conversation here about Planned Parenthood and the, uh, the fight uh, amongst some um, to defund Planned Parenthood at the federal level. I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how that uh, conversation has struck you, because obviously it brings some of these very important issues back into the forefront and onto you know, the floors of Congress in a way that we maybe haven't had for some time.
2: Well, I think it. it yeah, it, it was really. It's really been disappointing. I think in the progress that we've been making over the past forty years around women's health and women's rights, to have a conversation back about whether we should fund or defund uh, a woman's decision, and 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 to clarify that in this state and in this in this country. Uh, Public funds are not going towards uh, those; those public dollars are not going towards uh, abortion. But we have to trust. You know, when the Ms. Foundation started forty years ago, and I'm sure Gloria says this uh, when you're talking with her. Um, when the, we, we trusted that women knew and their bodies and could make decisions for their families and what was right for their families and their communities. And what we have to understand is that communities need to make, women need to make those decisions for themselves and for them, their families. And we can't make that for them. And we need to be aware of not just whether you're funding or defunding Planned Parenthood and what that looks like, but there are many more organizations across this country that are doing work to help protect and defend women's rights on a very localized level. And that's the importance of funding like uh, Women We Deliver and the Community Foundation because they know what's happening in their communities and what's happening on the ground and can make sure that those organizations continue to get funded so that women, women of color, immigrant women, and low-income women can all have access and control over their reproductive rights. Uh,
0: Katja, another piece of this, of course, is more broadly the question of education for women around the globe. Uh, The Nobel uh, Prize laureate, uh, Malala Yousafzai, has certainly taken uh, education for girls around the globe as as the thing that she is championing, and we're hearing more about it, but... um, even with as many problems as there are in the United States, it is a far more systemic problem in many developing countries. I guess I'm wondering how big you see the challenges there, and maybe you can talk about some of the progress made toward getting girls educated in various places around the world.
3: Yes. In, in general, we, we are optimists. We see it both when it comes to family planning and maternal health, that things are really going the right way. And we think it it, it is also because it's not seen only as a woman's issue anymore. It's seen as an economic and an a development issue and of course girls education is one of the drivers of that progress today we see that there's almost parity in the primary education around the world but when as soon as we get into secondary education and beyond uh, girls drop out they drop out for many reasons um, they, they have to go home help their families when they start menstruating, you know, it, for many it's difficult. There's no access to water sanitation and et cetera. But we do see, and, and it's, it's, it's a very, very strong investment case, that when we keep girls in school beyond the seventh grade, we see child marriage go down. We see um, maternal mortality go down. We see a uh, number of children go down. We see, in general, healthier families and we also see the effect on GDP for countries, so it is a it is a very strong strong investment case there uh, and combining that with access to family planning, access to good health, and the economic empowerment that is what we would call a
0: power cocktail uh, Sharon, we obviously do not have the gaps in education between. Uh, boys and girls in Greater New Haven that we do in other parts of the world. But still, I assume that education is a big part of what you're looking at for girls and women.
1: Absolutely. Um, our our colleague fund here in uh, Greater Hartford, the Aurora Foundation, they have made a priority for college completion, um, mentioning the difficulties and the challenges in completing that degree. And we see that um, working with our partners at Gateway and the universities, we hear back that uh, young women oftentimes are, are not able to complete their degree because caregiving responsibilities at home prevent them from actually doing that. So yes, we're concerned about it and we're
0: focused on it. Uh, Katja, before I let you go, I know that you have a, a conference coming up in Denmark next May. Who will you be bringing together?
3: Well, it will be the largest conference on the health, rights, and well-being of girls and women for more than a decade. It's shaping up very well and we expect five to six thousand participants and that would be everything from heads of state, heads of UN agencies, ministers of various kinds, but also the local change makers from communities and a lot of young people. So it's very unique in that nature that it brings everybody around the same table and that dialogue that happens there really echoes through afterwards. Focus will be on solutions, on how Do we make, you know, kind of knowing that women are drivers of development and progress, how do we make the new global development goals that the world has just agreed upon, how do we make them matter most for girls and women? Because that's the train that's going to drive it.
0: Katja Iverson is CEO of Women Deliver, a global advocacy group for investment in girls and women. Katja, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it.
3: My
0: pleasure. Uh, Tracy Younger, before we run out of time, I, I, I should ask, on a national scale, what areas do you see could use more focus and more investment in this world?
2: So, you know, I th- I think I'm going to leave it to the grassroots where we have been placing our dollars, which is around uh, health, safety, and economic security, ensuring that uh, organizations on the ground have the flexibility to use the dollars as they see fit, and that people understand that we need those dollars and the flexibility so that they can service the community. And it means being able to support organizations that have budgets of around $500,000 or less. It also means that these are oftentimes organizations that are run by women uh, of color and women in, in rural areas that we need to make sure we get dollars into those communities co- so that they can come up with the innovative solutions that will help grow and uh, and then bring them together so they can share that information with each other.
0: Teresa Younger is president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. She was formerly the executive director of Connecticut's Permanent Commission on the Status of Women. Teresa, good to talk with you once again. Thanks for joining us on Where We Live. Thank you. Uh, Sharon Capetta is director of development at the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven and lead staff for the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Sharon, thank you for joining us And congratulations on your anniversary Thank you, John This anniversary is coming up this October 30th Where the Community Fund will have a luncheon At the Omni Hotel at Yale Special guests include Teresa Younger and our next guest, Gloria Steinem Gloria Steinem has a new book out It's called My Life on the Road We'll talk about her life and her travels Throughout her uh, last, maybe say, three, four decades It's coming up next here on Where We Live This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, legislative leaders met with the governor this week for budget talks. On our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, we'll talk about what they talked about with a team of Capitol reporters. Hope you can join us. Today on our program, American feminist icon Gloria Steinem, who just came out with her first book in more than two decades. It's called My Life on the Road, and it offers a candid account of Steinem's life as a traveler, a writer, and a leader of the women's rights movement. Earlier this month, Steinem joined us by phone to talk about the book and to preview her upcoming appearance as part of an event celebrating the Community Fund for Women and Girls in New Haven. Gloria Steinem, welcome back to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about your brand new book called My Life on the Road, which is just coming out now. It's your first book in about 20 years. Why tell this story about life on the road right now?
4: Because I was living it instead of telling it. I think it was almost 20 years ago when I decided to write this book because I realized that I was writing least about what I was doing most. And then I would work on it every summer for a month and then not work on it for 11 months. So, I mean, in a way it's it's better because there's a lot more experience in it, but I got very impatient with myself, as you can imagine.
0: Your life traveling didn't start once you became famous. It, it started very early in your life. Tell us about growing up and about moving from place to place, Ohio, Florida, Michigan, and California, and what it meant to you as you were growing up.
4: Oddly, I didn't realize until I started the book that, of course, perhaps the fact that I was spending more than my half my life on the road was related to growing up in a house trailer as a child, because until the age of 10 or so, uh, my parents and my sister and I had a a small summer resort in southern Michigan. But for most of the year, we got in our house trailer and traveled to Florida or California with my father making a living by buying and selling antiques to roadside dealers. So, you know, it really is the most familiar thing in a deep childhood sense.
0: I'm sure, much like many other children who grow up moving from place to place, you talk about wanting to have a more traditional life, a more traditional childhood with the house that you call home. Is that something that you you longed for as a kid?
4: Yes, I think especially as a child, you want to be like other kids. So I would see in movies that other kids lived in houses with white picket fences and walked to school, and I thought, oh, I want to do that too. (laughs) And I never stopped to think that those kids might envy me because I was leading a, a much more free life. Of course I never quite learned math or geography except by going state to state but I read all the time so um you know which was kind of what my parents were counting on I think so you know I didn't go to school a full year until I was about 11 or so
0: This of course I'm sure gave you over time an itch to continue to travel um, talk about the the formative experiences you had as you were a, a young woman, and some of the places that you went. I I, I read about a, a formative trip to India, maybe a chance to see places that you never thought that you'd see growing up. What what did travel mean once you what, once you were out on your own and doing some traveling?
4: Mm. Um, you know, it's it's not as if I understood this at the time, you know, I think we understand one step at a time. I went to India right after I graduated from college and spent two years living there, partly because I had a uh, for a mother and two grandmothers, and so I'd grown up with some sense of India. Also, I'd taken a wonderful course on India in college, also because I was engaged in trying not to get married, you know, so we <laughs> we we do things for for multiple motives, but uh, in all that time, I assumed I would come home and uh, marry and have children and live in one house, you know, like you were supposed to. It's just that I kept putting it off. It took me until, I don't know, almost 50 to realize, wait a minute, this isn't preparing for life. This is my life.
0: What did your travel, especially your travel abroad, teach you about the different ways that, that women live in the world and some of the challenges that they face?
4: Certainly, living in India taught me that many, many, many women in India faced huge physical challenges more than in many other countries. It also taught me about unity among women because there had been a huge women's movement that led to the independence movement and many of whose tactics were those tactics of nonviolence adopted by Gandhi, as I later learned. So It both taught me the depths of problems worldwide and also ways of organizing uh, against them.
0: And I know that one thing that you encountered even here in the United States is how, especially in many very religious communities, the idea of the man being the head of the household and having dominion over the wife and the family is something that is, it's not, Unfortunately, it's not a an old fashioned notion. It is a very current notion. It's a notion that that persists today uh, across America, and, and you don't have to go very far, Gloria Steinem, to to, to find that uh, that women aren't necessarily viewed as equals in in many households.
4: Yes, and I've I've come to see in a deep way that in a big sense, in a big anthropological sense, that is the purpose of monotheism. I mean, if God looks like man, man is God. And it uh, has racial implications, too. I mean, why does Jesus have blonde hair and blue eyes in the middle of the Middle East? You know. So I think in a big way, we have to begin to talk about the politics of religion. Otherwise, those kinds of politics that are so deep are the only ones we don't talk about.
0: We're talking with Gloria Steinem, uh, whose brand new book is called My Life on the Road. Uh, she's going to be at the Community Fund for Women and Girls celebrating their 20th anniversary this year. We'll have more information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Actually, in talking about politics, near the end of your book, you talk about working in politics. And and you tell a story about going to work uh, in Missouri to campaign for Harriet Woods in a U.S. Senate race against John Danforth. And the reason I wanted you to talk about this time is because you lay out a a very interesting series of impacts that this race and the outcome of this race had, and you draw the the sort of conclusions that might, um, I suppose, cure someone of the notion that their vote doesn't matter. Can you just tell the story about that race and what you learned from it?
4: Yes, I'm I'm so glad that you bring that up, because I do think we are told that politics is dirty, our vote doesn't matter, in order to suppress the vote by people who benefit from a low voter turnout— because the low turnout tends to be of whiter, better educated or richer voters and older voters too, not so much younger voters. So I truly learned a lifetime lesson by the race that you cite because Harriet Woods lost it by less than 1% of the vote due to a huge influx of well-paid ads, negative ads at the very end. In fact, it was so clearly about money that it became the inspiration for the founding of EMILY's List. So, you know, as a result of the election of Danforth to the U.S. Senate, he took with him as part of his staff a man named Clarence Thomas, who then was visible in Washington as a very rare black right-wing person and Lawyer, right? And so he then was appointed the head of the EEOC and did his best to dismantle the class action abilities of the EEOC, then briefly on the Court of Appeals, and then was present as a possible replacement, uh, an African American replacement for the great African American jurist, Thurgood Marshall. Marshall. You know, think of everything that resulted from him, arguably from him being on the court. One being the victory of uh, Bush over Gore, thus leading to two wars in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, the privatization of prisons around the country, so that now they, many more are run for profit, as was pioneered in in Texas. Uh, you know, you you can just go on and on of denial of climate warming you know and you can trace all of that back to just a few votes in the state of Missouri it's, it's it's for like the parable you know for want of a nail the the shoe was lost the horse was lost the battle was lost and we we must understand that because the voting booth happens to be the only place in the world that i can think of where the most powerful uh, are no more powerful than the least powerful
0: mm. talking a bit about politics I, I I would love to have you weigh in a little bit on the on the debate surrounding the defunding of planned parenthood, the fact that this has been held up as essentially a a way to shut down the government to talk about one instance on tape as a reason to now shut down the entire government. What do you make of this having a long experience about politics of this sort in Washington?
4: First of all, it is going against the majority opinion. Planned Parenthood is pretty much the most trusted and supported organization in the United States. So it has, again, once again, if we had a voter turnout that was greater, then we might not be having this, this discussion. But it is about something basic, which is the control of reproduction, which means controlling women's bodies. It's not a debate that's going to go away because it is so fundamentally basic. I mean, all the courses that we take on economics ought to start with reproduction, not just production, because it is so much more basic to the production of workers and soldiers and the ability to influence what races and classes increase or don't increase. You know, it is so fundamental, it is so much part of the air we breathe that we don't always notice how fundamental it is, but at this moment in time, the ultra-right wing is definitely noticing it because we, as a country, are about to become a minority European-American country for the first time. This seems good to me because, you know, we're going to understand the rest of the world better, we'll be more diverse, but it doesn't seem good to groups that have been born into the idea that being white and also being male gives you some natural upper place in, in in a hierarchy. They seem to be kind of in panic now. So the same groups that are opposing immigration, for instance, are also opposing safe and legal abortion, sex education, and contraception, because, you know, as they point out the white race you know there is no such thing as race but in their terms white women are having fewer children than women of color apparently and they are literally in a panic you know i mean i think if we understand how both how basic it is and also how wrong you know we can help to mobilize ourselves to continue what we hope to be the American <laughs> the American tradition of, of equality and democracy.
0: And this may be, be too broad a statement, but I, I've looked at the last few years since uh, President Obama was elected and everything that's happened since then as being largely in America a conversation about race in various ways, certainly about immigration in the last year and a half, the many, many issues having to do with police in urban areas, And African-Americans. It seems as though this presidential race is shaping up to be one that may be much more about gender. An awful lot of Republican candidates who talk about reproductive rights. Donald Trump, who says some very, uh, very unflattering things about women, two women in the race, of course, Hillary Clinton and Carly Fiorina. Do you, do you think, Laura Steinem I'm making too much of the fact that gender might be the big issue of 2016?
4: No, no, I think you're right. I just think we need to always remember that gender and race are intertwined in a way that can't be disentangled because you can't maintain racism without controlling the bodies of women, which is why it's just not possible to be a feminist without being anti-racist, and it's not possible to be successfully anti-racist without being I mean it, it is just so deeply and and clearly intertwined and I think you're right about the kind of racialized politics that we have you know the sometimes I think the right wing is so anti-obama and so racist that if if they had cancer and he had the cure they wouldn't accept it it's deep and it's it's self-defeating but it is tied up with gender and tied up with gun control and all kinds of other images of of masculinity.
0: When you hear a woman interviewed on on the news in reaction to a reporter's question about whether they'd want to vote for Hillary Clinton or or Carly Fiorina, and they talk about wanting to have a woman in the White House, maybe not talking more deeply beyond the issue than that— how does that strike you, Gloria Steinem? I mean, what does the potential of a woman winning the presidency in 2016 mean to you if a lot of the conversation is just about a woman in the White House and and not much more?
4: No, it's not. It, it tells me that the questioner doesn't understand because, you know, there's always going to be in every group someone who looks like us and behaves like them. So it's not about biology it's about consciousness. It's not about a job for one woman. It's about making life fair for all women.
0: May I ask you, are, are you supporting anyone in the presidential yes, no, I race? Will,
4: I will uh, certainly support Hillary Clinton, yes. I think clearly based on not only the fact that she's a woman, which is helpful in a positive way because to walk around all of your life as a female person does give you a different consciousness uh, or may give you a different consciousness, but also because she has more experience than anyone else. And she has put forward a unique view of foreign policy that understands that the single biggest determinant of whether a country will be violent inside itself or will use military violence against another country is actually has now been demonstrated in a truly great book called Sex and World Peace, which I recommend to everybody by Valerie Hudson and other scholars, has been absolutely proven to to be even more than poverty, even more than access to natural resources, religion, or a degree of democracy. It's violence against females, because that's what people see first, at least in the dominant, dominated Uh, masculine, feminine roles, often in violence as well, frequently inside the family, and it normalizes it. It normalizes the whole idea that one group is born to dominate another and can be changed, of course, but it takes a lot of effort to change what we have experienced in the family and in our childhoods. So the idea that violence against females should be a consideration in our foreign policy has been pretty uniquely pioneered by Hillary Clinton.
0: Before I let you go, I I should just say, I think when I interviewed you in person when you were at Central Connecticut State University a few years ago, we we talked a bit about this issue, and I'm always fascinated by it because of just what you said about the the different consciousness that a female politician like Hillary Clinton may bring to it. There is a sense among many Americans, certainly, that women and men are able to do all of the same things and they are able to approach issues in exactly the same way but you're saying something very very nuanced and something I've always been fascinated by which is that having a woman president might very well mean that there's a different foreign policy j- just because in part of her experiences because of the consciousness she brings as a woman to to the job of president. Well,
4: you know, it's not only because of her experiences or because she's a woman. For instance, in, now in his later years, uh, former president Jimmy Carter has come to understand this too. Hmm. And has written very movingly about it. So it's, it is it's not about biology. It is about consciousness. And we do have always to remember that there are the Clarence Thomas's, the Sarah Palins, who look like their group but behave like the other group. <laughs> you know? I think readers re- voters recognize that. I, certainly Sarah Palin was more supported by white male voters than by female and or people of color voters.
0: Did I get this right, Gloria Steinem, that you were asked by the Treasury to come and talk about which woman should be on the $10 bill?
4: I talked to one of the the women in the Treasury about that. She came to see me, and we we talked about it.
0: What are your thoughts about that?
4: First of all, it's symbolic, as, as we recognize. Secondly, I would opt to replace Andrew Jackson because he was the most destructive towards the original residents and continuing residents of this country, Native Americans. So I would much rather replace him on the $20 (laughs) bill. Symbolically, it would be great, therefore, to have Wilma Mankiller, who was the first elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. But because of the era, I thought, you know, why not Sojourner Truth? I mean, she's a great hero of all of our movements, and she is of the same vintage as the the current uh, people on dollar bills.
0: It's a great idea. Gloria Steinem is, of course, a writer and activist and organizer. Her brand new book is called My Life on the Road. She's going to be helping to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Gloria Steinem, great to talk with you once again. Thank you so much for joining us on Where We Live.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Our program is produced by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Naleya. Our technical producer is Kion Wolfe. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to our interns, Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. Continue our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.